is Decoding Learning Differences with Kimberlyn Lavelle, and this episode is The Science of Reading with Nate Hansford. Hello, Nate. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, you are my go-to resource for all things research about science of reading and programs and all of that. I love your website and your work and your podcast, but can you give a little bit of information to our listeners who may not have any of that information about who you are, what you do, and all of that? Well, thank you. That's a very kind opening. Um, my name's Nate. I am a teacher. I, you know, some people say what grade they teach, but I've taught every grade. So, and I don't like pigeoning myself down into one grade. So I'll, I just say I'm a teacher or a school teacher. Um, and I am really interested in knowing what works in classrooms. So I've spent a lot of time researching this topic. Uh, I'm not a professional researcher. I don't have a PhD, although I do have my specialist in reading and special education. Not that those accomplishments are particularly amazing, um, but I, I have written um, two books on this topic. And actually I have three more coming out in the near future or near-ish future. Um, and I've written a, a couple hundred articles and recorded a few hundred podcasts. I've actually deleted most of the podcasts now um, because I've realized I just prefer writing over talking. Um, but it's, it's much, actually, I much, prefer to be interviewed on someone else's podcast and to go on my own now. Um, yeah, so I'm just really interested in looking at what does the research show? Because I felt like when I first got into this, um, there was a lot of opinions being put out there as fact or as science. I often saw people say things like, well, science shows, and then not have like a, a citation to support it or um, just claim something was evidence-based based off like very very weak circumstantial or theoretical evidence and i was just like i i don't understand how we get to call this science so uh, that that idea has kind of been this weird little rabbit hole that i've fallen down and keep falling further into and uh yeah so i feel like you should have like an unofficial phd at this point just all of the, <laughs> the research you've chosen which and i forgot to say actually i have one of the books Scientific hey, principles of reading instruction. So that's my favorite of the two. Uh, yeah. I've actually taken the first lovely one. Lovely color research, all the things. I, I had a book before that one, and it is. Um, I'm having a second edition coming out in March, so I've taken it off the shelves because I know that my second edition is much better than the first, and uh, I just didn't want anyone to buy it. I, I thought I'd rather they wait till the new edition comes out. At this point, so awesome. Awesome. Um, okay, so the book being, this book being The Scientific Principles of Reading Instruction, can you give a brief-ish summary of what some of the most important scientific principles of reading instruction are? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. I think some people think, you know, in order to sell a book or to write a book, you should have some very new ideas. And really what I found was that some of the things we found in research decades ago still hold true today and are the most important things in terms of reading instruction. They're the things that we um, have the strongest evidence for. And uh, I would call them the six pillars of reading instruction, which is a little play on the original term, which is the five pillars, but um, that is phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary, morphology, uh, fluency, 
and comprehension. Um, which if you want, I can talk about each one of those things a little bit, yes. but I would say those are the things that are the most important. So phonemic awareness sounds like this really fancy word, but it just means the ability to identify and manipulate sounds within words. So this is an important skill because if students can't differentiate the sounds they hear in a word, they're not gonna be able to decode it or encode it, meaning spell. So it makes those later skills like learning how to use phonics or learning how to spell very difficult if students don't have that skill. And some students are gonna pick that up naturally, but we find that there are certain drills that we can do with students that really improve their ability to uh, hear and identify sounds within words. And there's really, I mean, there's a lot of focus on a lot of different ones, um, but there's really only two that have strong evidence. And I find it sometimes a bit ironic because they're often not the two that people want to use. So the, the first one is segmenting. So that's just have the student identify the sounds they hear in a word. So for example, in the word the, we hear ah, uh, that's it. So just getting kids to segment words, and that's something any parent can do at home. Um, and it works better actually if you write the word, say the word out loud to the student, and then ask them to tell you what sounds they hear. And then you, if uh, once they've done that, you can actually circle those sounds for the students or underline them to help uh, show them where they are. This has been a drill that's been proven to help improve students' reading ability, especially for younger kids and really struggling learners. A similar drill is blending. Blending is sort of the opposite skill. You give students a word and you segment it out for them. So you show each sound of the word separate and then you say it for them, blended. So if I wanna say cat, instead of saying cat, I'd say cat, and then ask the kids, what word is that? That's a blending drill. Um, and these two drills have been shown to be one of the most effective things you can do to help teach a student how to read. Uh, and they're very simple and easy to do. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Do you have any questions about that or should I just jump um, on to the next one? Yeah, let's really fast. I know yeah. one of the things you mentioned is, and I've heard you say this before, is that writing the word for them, like putting in that visual letters to identify those sounds is, is more helpful for phonological awareness than just auditory. It's not so much that it actually it's more helpful for phonological awareness or, or phonemic awareness. It's actually more helpful for improving reading and spelling later on. So uh, we see very high. There's a lot of drills that are meant to be done just orally without, you know, having anything written down. And those are really good at improving students' phonemic awareness skills. But those skills don't seem to translate to reading or spelling in research if it hadn't been done via writing. And the only drills we have a lot of research showing that improve writing and spelling, or sorry, reading and spelling, is blending and segmenting when the letters are written out for the students. So there are a lot of phonemic awareness programs out there, but you know I'm a little critical of some of them for this reason because most of them seem to not use letters and they seem to use uh, types of drills called manipulation and deletion, which have far less research supporting them. So it's, it's sort of this weird little thing in which the most popular way to teach the skill doesn't seem to align with the scientific research on the topic. Well, and the scientific research actually seems like the easiest way, like writing it and yes. use the sounds, like that's the easiest way. And it feels like we're trying to make it harder for the kids in an effort to make them better, but it's less beneficial overall. Yeah. And maybe it's just about selling programs. Maybe it's hard to sell a program, which is just like, 
write 10 words on the page and have the kid identify the sounds in the word. Maybe that's not a good way to sell programs. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little um, um, conspiratorial there, but. Well, and I know I've heard some arguments that you, it should be auditory only because otherwise the kid is just using the letter to tell them the sound rather than working on phonemic awareness development. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting argument, um, but I would call that a, a theoretical argument because we've already tested this in research and we've, we've got over several decades of research on this topic and all the research seems to point one way, um, which one shows better outcomes. Like you, and this is something I, I'm quite, something I talk about quite a bit. I don't tend to worry much about why something works. I used to think that was really important, but the problem with that is people have all these theories about what should work and why something should work. And they're almost always wrong when we look at actual scientific evidence. And even myself, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten the, I've gotten the opportunity to um, conduct three large scale meta-analyses now, and I've submitted them for peer review. Um, they're not published yet, but uh, I had a hypothesis or ideas I thought would show to be correct in the research for all of them. And most of my hypotheses were wrong. And I'm someone who spent years studying this, years researching this, and I have years of experience as a teacher in the classroom. I'm not someone who's in a university, you know, working completely separate from kids. And I still have tons of predictions that get completely debunked by myself. So <laughs> I'm just really dubious that our, our ability to just rational out or reason out why something will work or what should work devoid of evidence. So I love that. Now I'm curious, what are the hypotheses that you debunked? Well, one, I'm actually in the process of writing an article about right now on that I haven't put out yet is I thought individualization of curriculum was everything. I thought making the curriculum as closely aligned to students' uh, needs would be the most important. And I think that makes perfect sense in theory. And it's truthfully how I teach in my own class. I try to identify the needs of my students and teach those needs as much as possible individually. But when we have studies where on that topic, it seems to not work out particularly well. I can come up with a couple of different examples of where that doesn't seem to work. One where I, I've submitted an article for peer review was um, we looked at different paces of instruction for phonics. So looked at a fast, medium, or slow pace of instruction or an individualized pace for the teacher decided how fast to teach the phonics based on the student's learning curve. And um, we, we found over and over again that when the teacher decided the pace, the learning actually went down. Um, my guess as to why, and it's just a guess, you know, there's no way to tell. My guess as to why is that teachers underestimated how fast students could learn and artificially slowed the pace down too much. That's just a guess. But we also have um, studies on computers trying to do the same thing. And it turns out that computers are also bad at this. And the funny thing is that like, Computers are automated, so it's it's all like on a computer program. The kid answers the question, and they they try to get it right, and the kid gets it wrong. But the computer's like, oh, they don't know this skill yet. We need to keep teaching it to them. But the computers seem to do a really bad job of this, and it seems to lower learning for to use computer programs that have this type of technology. So again, that seems to make counterintuitive sense to me. And even this whole reading wars debate, if you look back at the original theory behind balanced literacy, which is the opposition to structured literacy, they found, or the original theory was basically just that teacher autonomy to individualize instruction to students' needs was what mattered. Whereas what we call the sort of the science reading movement today or the structured literacy people were arguing, 
we need to use a systematic approach and we need to predetermine what is teach to taught to students to ensure that all students have the same high level of learning. And we see routinely that the, the group of studies where they looked at you know, teachers having this greater autonomy did worse. Now, I would argue it was because uh, the people running these studies seemed to also have a resistance to phonics, but that wasn't actually what they were claiming. They weren't saying we're, we're not teaching phonics. They're saying we're individualizing it to our students' needs. And I think the hard part here is just maybe that doing this in practice in reality might be very, very difficult and might require really, really well-trained teachers. I'm not sure, but um, I'm definitely going to have to dig more into the research on this topic. Yeah, that's that's super fascinating. I really want to see where you go with that and what you find out because I agree it seems counterintuitive, but then I also I went to like okay, well if teachers are individualizing and they're overworked, they might just not be putting in enough effort in terms of they don't have the time and effort to really dig into okay, how did they really do on this? What is our next step? What and always be thinking in forward motion instead of like, oh, we'll, we'll just do that again tomorrow. Like kind of, we'll just review. Mm. I see it slowing itself down just from a like burnout perspective. Yeah. No, that's that's a really good hypothesis. I, I think you're probably onto something there. Like if, I think in an ideal world, uh, you've given me a, a, a really high quality teacher who's an individualizing instruction versus a teacher's just going at a set pace. I think the teacher individualizing is going to do better, but it seems to be really hard to do that in practice. Maybe at least with class sizes of 30, maybe that's the real problem is class sizes make it difficult. I don't know. Right. Well, and now my brain's going all sorts of, I'm going to stop my brain. <laughs> Let's move on to phonics. <laughs> okay. Describe that. And Yeah. So phonics and phonemic awareness often get confused. Um, people often try to describe the difference between phonics and phonemic awareness as whether or not letters used. That's actually incorrect. So um, there's a lot of different types of phonics, admittedly, but we usually when we talk about phonics, we're talking about synthetic phonics and we're talking about systematic phonics. And that means that you're teaching the sounds that individual letters or graphemes, such as digraphs and trigraphs make. So as an example, it might be like, B makes the B sound. And then I might give some words that have that, that sound in it. Maybe I'll ask the students to think of some words. And then maybe we'll we'll have some drills to help them practice that. Um, or similarly, we might be like, AE graphene makes the A sound. And then we'll have, some, again, some practice on that, that graphene. That's traditionally how phonics is taught. But uh, of all of the interventions, I think, that have been studied, phonics seems to be the most controversial because there's a, a group of scholars who really be, are convinced that it's authoritarian to teach students how to read in this way. And yet we have very strong evidence that teaching students to read via phonics is effective. And we also have very strong evidence that it's the most important thing for struggling readers. And that, that kind of makes sense because if you think about it, if you have a student who's in grade four, but they're reading at a kindergarten level, it makes sense that we would give them kindergarten instruction. They miss something at that stage. So it's really, I think, less to do with the age of the students and more to do with their, their developmental stage as a reader. And that emergent readers, people, you know, students who cannot decode words need to learn how to decode words. And this makes a lot of sense because there are over 2 million words in the English language. So you cannot teach students to memorize 2 million words. If I sat there every class, every day for the rest of my teaching career, and I had the same group from K to eight every, every year, 
I could not teach them to memorize 2 million words. It just doesn't work. So you have to give them the tools for decoding unfamiliar new words. And then you have to give them um, opportunities to learn new words through reading practice. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that part about the authoritarian. And I just immediately went to like, but what do they think about math instruction? Like, you know, there's one answer for, for certain things, like two times two, at least until you get into like weird. Well, it's it's funny you say that because actually the um, we've really seen a rise of a philosophy in education called constructivist teaching. And it was really centered around this idea that the teacher should not be providing direct instruction to students that the students learning would happen in a nonlinear fashion and that the teacher shouldn't be, you know, sort of the stage master at the circus directing things that they should be more facilitating things. So we see, we actually have the same problem math. In fact, I would argue that on in whole math instruction is, is more in trouble than language. And that, you know, you routinely hear things like never teach formulas. In fact, I've been across my teaching career. I've had multiple uh, people tell me you should never teach the kids a math formula. They should discover every math formula on their own. Now, despite having a, a blog and books that heavily focus on statistics, I'm not actually a good math student. I had to try really, really hard in math. And I know that I would have never succeeded in a system where my teachers were like, you're going to discover all the formulas on your own, Nate. Uh, that just wouldn't have worked. I wouldn't have learned. And I think, you know, the one of the biggest problems with this idea of sort of rebelling against what they would see as authoritarian teaching of phonics or math formulas is that it's actually not equitable. It really doesn't support our struggling learners or our most struggling students. We have to provide more explicit instruction and more support to our struggling learners. So I think it's really an equity problem. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see that. That is that, and I've heard, I you know I've heard of constructivist teaching, and I've heard some of those arguments, and I've understood like oh, okay, I could see that philosophy, but I feel like I've never heard it to that extreme of like not teaching any formulas. And I also always go to like it took thousands of years of mathematical geniuses to come up with these formulas. Like, why are we expecting every child to rediscover the wheel every time? Like. No, it does make sense. And, you know, it's easy to, to remove the nuance from these conversations. It doesn't mean that everything has to be taught explicitly. In fact, I would argue there's certain things that should be taught implicitly at certain ages. But um, it's these foundational skills that, that really seem to be very important to teach explicitly, especially in the early years, which is really funny because a lot of the constructivist argument is that the early years should be all play-based. And then the later years is where we should do the explicit instruction. But actually research shows that older students benefit more from less explicit instruction than do younger students. And younger students benefit more from explicit instruction than do older students. So it seems like the, the, the trend was reversed unknowingly by um, basically what I would call education philosophers. Because I don't really want to call them researchers because they're not basing their opinion on science. They're basing their opinion on philosophy. Yeah, that that makes sense um and yeah i was thinking about like those little kids that are like so eager to like learn all like just tell me i want to know it they mm. want that like it, they're asking for it like they're eager to get like that explicit instruction but i also wonder if part of like the argument for the play based is because kids do need to play to develop their brains whatever and we're not letting them like we're, mm. they're spending so much time at school and 
in different programs that then we're trying to give all the play during instruction time instead of finding a balance of, okay, we're going to give explicit instruction and make sure they have lots of time for play. Like, Definitely. And I, I think something that can get lost in these debates is that we need balance. And, you know, it's funny, like I often criticize balanced literacy as a, like an educational movement, but my biggest problem with balanced literacy is just that it wasn't balanced. It's um, the, the instruction was too heavily weighted in one direction. Um, but you, I think you're always going to have to balance these things out. Like I would never want to see, go back to the story of the schoolhouse days where, you know, the teacher was like, sit up straight, spit out your gum, wrap your knuckles. If you, you, you step one inch out of line and we're going to stand here reciting facts and memorizing all day. I don't think that's valuable for students, although it might be good for developing basic literacy. Um, but, you know, I think you can have a joyful classroom that also uses explicit instruction. Um, I use a ton of game-based learning in my own class. Um, and I think you can have those moments in the day and you can spread it out. It doesn't have to be, especially say in kindergarten, you know, when I, I was talking to kindergarten teachers at one point about phonics and they were like, isn't kindergarten supposed to be play-based learning? Isn't that the science shows? And I'm like, well, no, they can do phonics. There's lots of research showing they can, but they're like, well, how are you going to teach them that? Like they don't have the attention span. I'm like, it doesn't have to be three hours a day of phonics. It could be maybe 15, 10, 15 minutes in the morning, 10, 15 minutes in the afternoon. I don't think that's that big a deal. You could even divide it up more than that. You could be five minutes here, five minutes there. I don't, I don't think there's any problem with that. It, it just, I think it is about finding that balance and not letting our emotions or our ideals get the best of us and sort of take away learning opportunities from, from children. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely got phonics when I was in kindergarten. So growing, like once I became a teacher, I was always like, and a special ed teacher, like I was always looking for what am I, okay, I'm, I've got a kid, he can't read, I need, I need to work on phonics. Like I just naturally was doing that and found that there just weren't a lot of materials like yeah. in the school that were supporting that. So I'm, you know, trying to like make things up and <laughs> do, and then like later then finding out like, oh, I was doing something that no one was really supporting at that time. They weren't, you know, so it was just interesting yeah, finding I, out I, all of this stuff that, oh, I was kind of going against the grain, but I didn't know I was. It was just how I had learned to read. And it felt like the right way for a kid to learn to read. Like, of course, you have to know what the letters, what sounds they make and all of that. So I, I had a very similar experience. I graduated from teacher's college and I went to teach language for the first time as a homeroom teacher. And um, I had not taught. I was taught as a kindergarten kid phonics. And I, I remember learning to decode. I remember that I, all of a sudden it just... For me, it really clicked. I don't know if that happened for other people, but uh, there was just this moment I remember like, oh, I can decode words. I know the sounds. And then I just started reading like crazy. Um, and, but as a teacher, I'd never not been given any training on that. I hadn't been given any materials or resources. And I, another teacher in the school, um, her name was Lucy Blesser. She, she was, she recommended this phonics program to me called Fun Phonics. Um, and it's spelled with a, an F instead of a PH. Um, now it was an analytic phonics program. And in my opinion, it's not particularly good, but it was free. And it was the only phonics material I knew how to get to. So I used it. Um, and, and actually I will say, I think it's a great resource for parents if they wanna use extra instruction for their kid because it's completely free. And the nice thing about fun phonics is that it doesn't require um, a lot of support from an adult. It's sort of intuitive in how it's laid out. The students are supposed to be able to figure out things 
from the booklets on their own. Um, so it, it doesn't require a lot of support. So it's, it's a great, it's not something I would recommend to a teacher to use in a classroom, but it is a great resource, I think, for parents if they want to give, you know, a, like a work booklet to their kids, just give them a little bit extra practice. Right. By the All way, right. I have no, I know, a, uh, no connection to them whatsoever with this, this <laughs> sort of endorsement. I like, I like the the free options that you offer, which we'll dig into more later. Um, vocabulary. So vocabulary is a funny one. It's not as well studied as some of the other things. And um, there's sort of two separate ways vocabulary has been studied. It's been studied sorry, as a fluency intervention, which is funny because it's usually talking about meaning of words. But I think part of the issue is that sometimes people mean different things when they use different words um, in research. So some of the early 90s papers on vocabulary, they're really kind of talking about sight words, for lack of a better saying. And I know that's not, you know, I don't want to get into the whole what is a sight word thing because it's this whole thing. But um, they're, they're really talking about high frequency, irregular spelled words. Um, and there's some research showing that that's beneficial to students. And I think that's an area where the science of reading movement might be slightly off on the science. And it's, I think it's sort of a reaction to that, that Faunus Parnell, where there was this huge, intense focus on here's your word list of the week. You're going to go home and memorize that. Um, but as Dr. Sh Timothy Shannon has pointed out, there's about 100 to 200 words that make up almost 50% of all written language. Um, and a lot, a lot of them are um, not necessarily fully irregular spelled. It's sort of a misnomer. But the teaching those students those words in some way or another is a good idea. Now, I will say that personally, I don't teach those words by giving a kids a word list to memorize. I do segmenting drills, going back to phonemic awareness. I use segmenting drills to teach these words. Um, but uh, it does make sense to teach those. Um, now, if we're talking about more, what I think is more commonly referred to as vocabulary, which is um, uh, the meaning associated with a word, you got to realize there's really three types of vocabulary words. We have sort of what I call our tier one words, which are everyday language. You don't have to teach these because students are going to learn them regardless. Like you don't have to teach kids explicitly what the word cat means. Um, then we have tier two words, which are um, the types of words that are often in books, in literature that are not every, used in everyday language. And students tend to learn these through read-alouds. Um, and that, that's um, because they're, they're typically in that literature. So, you know, you know, the word like astounding, people aren't going to necessarily use the word astounding in their everyday language, but you might find it in a lot of books. Um, so read-alouds are a great way to teach kids vocabulary. And the third tier is like those scientific words or there's academic words that are um, necessary to teach explicitly. Now, that said, um, there's been a lot of research on vocabulary and does it improve comprehension? And the irony is that it seems to depend on the type of test we do. So when we do a standardized test, um, we tend to see very low impacts for reading comprehension when we teach vocabulary. But when we use a researcher design test, where it's typically more targeted to the words taught, then we see amazing outcomes, like really large. And I think that's because vocabulary effects don't transfer. If I teach you the meaning of several words and they're not on the reading test, you're not gonna benefit. But if you, they are on your reading test, you are. Um, so the way I have taken this is that really when we teach vocabulary, it should be specific to the context. And what that means is either, you know, it can be academic subject focused. So, for example, if I'm a science teacher and I'm doing a science unit, 
it's a really good idea that I start off the unit with some vocabulary for that unit. And same similarly for literature. Like, let's say I'm teaching a Shakespeare story. Well, Shakespeare used a ton of words that nobody uses anymore. And he made up a whole bunch of words. So teaching those words that they're going to find in the text before they read it is really going to improve their comprehension. And something I've done in my own practice is that when I do fluency, which maybe we should talk about next, um, I always identify the words of a student that I think they're going to have struggle, trouble with. I segment the words out orally for them. And then I tell them the meaning of the words. And we have a little discussion about each word. And I was actually um, very pleased because I saw Dr. Timothy Shanahan writing about uh, this topic just, I think, this last week. And um, he said that he does the same thing, which I'm really pumped about because I, I kind of hold him as high esteem as the, the most um, um, informed researcher in the world on reading instruction. So I really look to his work. You were saying earlier you looked to mine, but I, I really look to his. Um, so I was really pleased to hear that we do that the same way. But I call this um, more of an incidental form of instruction. Now, it's, it's explicit and systematic and it happens every day. Like every day I have a section of my reading block for, for, for vocabulary. But it's, it's not that I have a, you know, a, a list of words that I'm choosing from on a weekly, daily basis and giving out these kids word lists and be like, okay, here's 10 words here to memorize their meanings. We'll have a vocabulary list on Friday. Because that type of intervention doesn't seem to show um, a large benefit, at least for reading comprehension. Yeah, yeah, that one, this seems to upset the children. Uh, okay, so you want to talk about fluency next? Yeah, so fluency is the ability to read accurately, smoothly, and quickly. Um, and this quickly part, I think is one of the more con um, controversial ones because, you know, people think we're trying to sit there and encourage them to read as fast as possible. It's not true. It's, it's actually much more important to focus on their accuracy. However, when we test fluency, the best way to test it is to test based on speed, just because it makes um, you taking a normed version of the test um, easier. And it's easier to sort of accurately identify um, where students uh, reading ability is. So that's actually the easiest way to test kids' reading abilities by using a time test. But uh, there's a lot of different ways to teach fluency, but really, ultimately, you're just trying to get a kid to read aloud in a, a context where an adult is gonna be correcting their, their um, missed uh, words. Um, and I would still, when a kid misses a word, I wouldn't necessarily shout out the answer. I would help them sound out the word, or another way of saying that is segment the word. So phonemic awareness, it's usually for the most part for older, younger kids, but we still kind of use those kids to get older in certain contexts. Um, there's one type of fluency instruction that's really well-researched and that's repeated reading. Um, and that's where you have students read the same text, usually several times in a row. Um, the research shows the strongest benefit for students if they read the text till it sounds perfect. And it's, uh, I heard Holly Lane talk about this and compare it to music. You know, in music, students don't necessarily play the same song once and then move on and never read it again. But when we teach reading, we often do teach reading that way. We're like, okay, you're going to read this text and then the next, you're going to read a new text and you were never going to repeat. But research has shown that if we get students to repeatedly read the same text, it has very large impacts on their reading ability. Um, and I think there's some resistance to this intervention because it's terribly boring. <laughs> Uh, you, you can't get away from that. It's not a fun thing to teach. You have a kid be like, all right, see this paragraph? We're going to read it five times. No kid wants to do it. Um, but 
it, the, the research shows that it not only benefits their ability to read that specific text, but new texts. And it's a common claim I see on social media that repeated reading only helps read the text the student is practicing. That's not true. It's been studied, very well studied in um, scientific research papers. It actually helps them read new texts um, and that's well documented. So um, yeah, repeated reading. Personally though, in my, I use this every day as a teacher. However, um, I try to limit it in the sense that if you do it too much, you just bore the kids and you're, you're gonna, you're gonna make them hate reading for lack of pleasure. I'm mean, gonna sound like a balanced literacy person. I'm killing the joy of reading. No, uh, but it works really well in my opinion with um, like a paragraph or two at a time. Yeah. Uh, and it, poems are great too, because there's a natural rhythm to the poem. And one of the things we're trying to develop with fluency instruction is their ability to read smoothly. So doing poems really works well for them. The poems is a good idea. I haven't, I haven't seen it used much with poems. Um, I early on, I think actually, yeah, from my very first year, I always had access to read naturally and then later read naturally live. And so I was always doing that in that program and it seemed to depend on the kid as to how well they responded to it. Like I had some that because in read naturally live, they get a score on their, their fluency, their expression. It's an expression score. Okay. And so it's one through four and I almost never gave a four because you have to actually have expression and I will pass you if you have a three, but I had some kids who they wanted that four. So they got very expressive and it was, you know, very motivating for them. So they would keep reading it until they knew that they could read it beautifully with expression. And they were excited to like, you know, get those scores and get that four and they knew that they had earned it. So that's cool. Um, but it's interesting that, that, uh, that the whole concept is, is good. And yeah, I've seen that um, in different ways. And I've seen the same thing where sometimes the kid just gets so frustrated with, with having to read it over and over and over. And then it does kind of kill it for them to some degree. Um, yeah. I think repeated reading is something that can be probably used at almost any age as soon as, or at least, and I, I actually, I asked Timothy Shanahan about this because it's not a, a subject that I've looked at as in-depthly as he has, but he said that the earliest he's seen it studied is halfway through grade one, but even then there was positive benefits found. So, but I think where it makes the most sense to be used is when students reach that decoding phase, you know, earlier I was talking about that emerging phase where the, we're teaching phonics and the students, they don't know uh, the sounds that letters make, but once they can sound out a word, but they're not reading smoothly, you hear it and they're like, the, at, j, um, d. And it's, it's, you can hear it, it's sort of painful to listen to, to be honest. Uh, when it gets to that stage, I think that's a perfect time to do a lot of repeated reading with students. And it helps to build that automaticity into their decoding. Because it's not like they're, you know, people often think that means they're memorizing the word. No, it's that we're giving them the chance to decode the word and then orthographically map it in their head and then right. practice it. Um, and it's about getting them to have a greater automaticity in their knowledge of words. Right, yeah, yeah, I've got I've, I've got two little ones that are working on learning how to read now and they seem to naturally want to do that where they've decoded it and then they're going back and rereading it and it's just, that's just how we do things. Um, and I've noticed a difference in the students I've worked with over the years where if that was the expectation from the beginning that you read it so it sounds so you keep going back to the beginning until you've read the whole little you know, four word sentence 
smoothly and you understand it, that's when you know you've finished the sentence. If it's choppy the whole way, you haven't really read the sentence because you don't know what it says. Um, and yeah, on a on a sentence by sentence level, it's very easy to get that practice in without it getting to be overwhelming and daunting. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right, so we have morphology and comprehension. Okay, morphology is easy. Comprehension is the real tough one to tackle. So um, morphology is the study of morphemes, which sounds probably really daunting to any parents listening, but they know morphemes. They just don't realize it. Um, so uh, morphology or morphemes, sorry, are the smallest unit of meaning in written language. So for example, a really easy one that everyone knows is ED. ED um, indicates past tense in a word, just like ing or ing indicates present tense in a word, or s indicates plural when it's put at the end of the word, or often es. Um, so these are what we call suffixes. Um, and we know that teaching students the meaning attached to um, letters and correspondences can actually improve their decoding, it can improve their fluency, and their general reading. It's really interesting to me, it doesn't seem to improve comprehension which makes no sense because it seems like it's a comprehension um, intervention. You're telling students, this is what the part of the words mean. So I, in ideal circumstance, if you students know the morphemes, they can decode the meaning of unfamiliar words without knowing them. And yet I've never seen any strong research that works that way, but it does seem to improve reading and it does seem to improve spelling in particular actually. And that one makes a little bit more sense, admittedly, because the English language we always have multiple letters that can make almost every sound. Um, so when, if students know all the sounds and all the phonic sounds, they can read a, a word and they can hear, see the possible sounds that those letters together might make. And they can make, you know, as Steve Dexter put it recently on a podcast, that statistical learning leap to guess what the word is based off the possible decoding sounds. Um, so like, for example, the word have. Well, you could pronounce the word have as have if you're looking at it phonetically or have. Um, however, uh, when students read a sentence and they hear, they see, I have a ball, it's, they're not going to go, I have a ball. They're, they're going to sort of intuitively pick that up for the most part, that it's half. Or if they do say, I have, they're probably going to go back and be like, mm, doesn't sound right. And of course, this is one of my issues with, you know, balanced literacy is that they explicitly taught this. And I don't think kids need to be explicitly taught that. I think they, they kind of figure that out on their own, um, that if the word doesn't sound right, Maybe another word could be used in its place. Um, but this doesn't work for spelling because um, when students say want to write uh, giraffe or photograph, they don't know which letters are going to make that F sound. And morphology can help teach them which letters are going to be used in those situations. Um, and it can give them a little bit more specific. Now, that said, morphology is far more expansive than phonology or phonics. There are roughly 250, I'm, I might be slightly off there, but there's roughly 250 graphemes or letters in the English language in combination that can make a sound. Whereas I believe there's 200,000 morphemes in the English language. So we're never gonna teach the students all of the morphemes either, but we can continuously teach the morphemes throughout their entire educational experience, K to 12, and slowly help build their morphological knowledge or awareness and help them improve their spelling, their reading, and their decoding. Um, now, in regards to 
how to teach morphology, it's really difficult because there's very little research on how best to teach it. And there's, there's some debate. Um, you know, Dr. Pete Bowers, I would argue, is one of the leading experts in the world on morphology. And I, he's far smarter than me, so take this with a grain of salt. But I kind of disagree with him on how he suggests we teach morphology. And here, we're both just speculating because there's not a lot of research on this. But he suggests we should focus on root words um, and bases. But there's a heck of a ton of root words and bases out there, um, probably millions. Um, so I, I tend to agree more with Dr. Lindstone, or not, she's not a doctor, my God, sorry, with Lindstone, who is a linguist and an author, and she's really brilliant at this. Um, and Dr. Lynn, or sorry, why am I calling her doctor? Uh, Lynn Stone is, um, suggests that we teach more the prefixes and the suffixes. And I, I tend to agree with her because there's not that many prefixes and suffixes, actually. And there's, there's about 100 or so, maybe 200, that, you know, are really commonly used across words. Um, uh, that if we teach them, it helps students decode a whole bunch of words um, really early on and help them with spelling for a long. Um, and I think a lot of parents are going to know these already. It's those, you know, um, it's those plural, it's that singular, it's that... Um, uh, past post. I mean, I, I can also say some of the, the prefixes they're for sure going to know. So for example, re. Everybody knows re usually means to do again, or un means to undo. De often indicates negative. Um, there's lots of these morphemes that we tend to know intuitively as adults from years of experience reading. Even unfamiliar root words. You know, um, if anyone's ever read the Harry Potter books, uh, They'll know that um, uh, the author, J.K. Rowling, really loved to use morphemes to create spells. So uh, luminous, I think, was her, her spell for make light. And uh, loom is um, a, a root word, I believe, for light. So she really liked to play with those, those morphology or the morphology in that way. Um, but teaching this is um, something that's, I think the easiest way to teach it is to, to go get a resource like, say, um, Lynn Stone. Um, there's, you can go online, you can find um, lists of prefixes and suffixes and their meaning. I've actually got some free resources myself on this that um, I'm happy for you to share the links to, but uh, uh, there's lots of great resources out there. Yeah. Um, when we were talking about that, I was thinking about my, just the other day in the car, I can't remember what word it was. It started with re. And the, my kids were asking what it meant. So then we talked about, well, re means again. So re, and then we started going through all these examples and then they started getting really silly with it and like making up their own, like re this and re that, and, you know? So it was like, and they understood and then they would give that as an example. So whatever it was, it was like re hat means hat again or whatever like silly yeah. things they were coming up with. Um, so yeah, it is it is definitely something easy to to teach and keep it fun. Actually, I do the exact same thing with my, my students. I'll give them a morpheme and I'll be like, okay, this is what it means. You probably already kind of intuitively knew that. What's the funniest word we can make using this morpheme? So combine it with another morpheme or another word, and let's see what's the funniest thing we can come up with. Yeah, I love that. All right, comprehension. So this, this is the most controversial one. And actually, I'm hosting a, a round table on my own podcast on this upcoming with several uh, scholars, I would say, are top scholars, way smarter than myself. And um, 
Oh, you have a visitor in the background. So comprehension is, is a really difficult one. In fact, I'm having a, a roundtable podcast with several top scholars who are far more brilliant than myself. Not that I would call myself brilliant, but, um, and I think it's, it's difficult comprehension because it's not one thing and there's not one form of instruction you can really use to improve it. Um, comprehension is really the product of a lot of skills coming together. And I, I kind of think it's a little bit like math in that, you know, we have these situational problems in math and people often think, the purpose of math is to teach students how to solve application problems. But the problem with that is that you can't necessarily teach application problems just by practicing application because there's a lot of underlying skills that go in. So before we can have, you know, fully comprehending readers, they have to be able to lift the words off the page. And that doesn't mean to say that you can't teach comprehension in earlier grades, but that's going to be a huge piece of it that you can't ignore. In fact, I looked at the impact of phonics instruction on comprehension and I found large outcomes. Um, so you, you have to be able to lift the words off the page. That's number one. Number two, you have to understand the meaning of the words on the page. So you can't, if you don't understand the words, the individual words on the page, it's going to be very difficult for you to comprehend it. And then we also have background knowledge, which I think is the most, in some ways, the most controversial of the elements of comprehension. Um, and that's it. We know that there's certain background knowledge dependent on reading a text. So the, the classic study that people like to talk about is the baseball study. And they give students a test on um, a story on baseball and they ask them questions about it. And the students can't understand what it means. And then they teach them about baseball and they give them the same reading text and they, they can um, understand that. But similarly to vocabulary, there's not necessarily a strong transfer effect. And that's to say that if I teach you about one background knowledge subject, let's say I teach you about the War of 1812, that's not necessarily going to help you read a book about the French Revolution. Now, there might be some carryover, but that mean, that's because there's just so much knowledge in the world, it's hard to pre-teach all of the knowledge in such a way. And there are attempts to do that. There's um, a couple of programs out there that are, are attempting to systematically create background knowledge by um, layering it, so in the hopes that will expose students to the most important topics of knowledge in the world that are most likely to come up in their reading so as to aid in comprehension. And there are three programs really well known for that. There's um, CKLA, there's Wit and Wisdom, and more slightly more controversially as ARC, which is the American Reading Company. Um, but the studies into whether or not we can improve or improve comprehension through this way are not very conclusive at this point. Um, and so, I'm a little cautious about telling people, well, it's important that you, you teach background knowledge as a core part of your instruction. But don't get me wrong. I think you should teach background knowledge. I think you should teach science. You should teach history. You should teach social studies. And there might be a value specifically in even doing a cross-curricular approach and teaching those in English class as well. Um, the problem is that it's hard to say that that will necessarily really reduce or result in very strong comprehension improvements makes sense theoretically, but we just don't have the evidence there yet. Um, and then we also have um, something called metacognition strategies that seem to improve comprehension outcomes. And metacognition strategies are really just attempts to make the, the reader more aware of what they're doing. So that's things like underlining the text when they find um, important parts or highlighting. It's things like rereading parts that they're finding confusing, something which I think most adults will do naturally. Um, or pausing um, when they get to difficult parts to think. Um, Self-questioning, these are all metacognition strategies. 
and they all have fairly strong evidence that they improve comprehension. Although there is some evidence that we don't want to use too much of these. You don't want to be teaching, you know, you don't want to use a, say, a metacognition strategy program where you're teaching metacognition strategies every day, every week, every school year. It's more like maybe we spend two to four weeks, maybe even six weeks in a school year talking about these strategies um, just to help some students um, get the benefit out of those. And then lastly, um, I'm going to borrow a term from um, my friend, Dr. Mitchell Brooken, um, and that's students need to be able to create a mental model um, because it's not just that they need to be able to read the words off the text. It's not just that they need to understand them. It's not just that they need to know the context of those words. It's that they need to be able to communicate that information and process it. Um, and that's where things like summarizing, inferencing, find the main idea come into play. And the research seems to really strongly suggest that summarizing and finding the main idea have the, the greatest benefit. Um, and one thing that I think that maybe gets lost is that there are really completely different types of texts out there. And how we're going to comprehend different types of texts is probably going to be very different. So for example, in the primary grades, I don't know that we need a ton of comprehension instruction in general because their texts tend to be very literal. You know, they're like about stories about little cats and bunnies and ghosts and witches. Uh, they don't tend to have a lot of deep plot or meaning. So asking the kid, what is the main idea or um, what could be the perspective of X character or teaching them to use a metacognition strategy or even teaching them background knowledge for that text. I don't know that it's necessary because the texts they're reading are so literal. Um, but then when we get to older grades, we have nonfiction texts, which require a lot of background knowledge. So um, if you're going to give students a, um, a text about volcanoes and they know nothing about volcanoes, that might be very difficult for them to read. So you might want to spend some time covering the vocabulary and covering the basic concepts. And I think that gets even harder if you're going to give them a text that's based on a historical event um, or a very scientific event. Um, and conversely, we also have some texts that are very non-literal, where um, there's hidden meaning, there's symbolism, there's imagery, there's metaphor, there's simile, there's foreshadowing, um, and there's deep philosophical themes. And sometimes we might have themes built inside of themes built inside of themes for really adult texts. Um, and it's not so much that I think we're teaching students how to find theme. I think it's what we're giving them practice doing that, that it does take some practice. And I also think something that gets missed sometimes is that it's just as much of a communication skill as it is a reading skill to be able to summarize or talk about the main idea. So if I'm going to talk about the main idea in a, a text, say in a grade eight classroom, I'm going to want to provide evidence to that point. And I'm going to want to use a paragraph format to do that. So, you know, for me, when I teach these things, it's just as much about teaching the writing behind that and the structure behind how we communicate these things and how do we know if something's evidenced or not evidenced as much as it is giving them practice say, to find the main idea. And ultimately, I think we probably want a variety of a lot of these types of instruction as opposed to say just one. I would never argue for just background knowledge instruction or just metacognition strategy or just vocabulary or just what we could call cognitive strategy, which is summarizing and, and finding the main idea. It's, it's about giving students, of, I think, a variety of texts and giving them a variety of type of comprehension questions to ask in order to help develop um, their knowledge base as both a reader and a communicator. So that's my very long-winded answer. Um, and I think I could get more long-winded on that, but 
I don't want to um, bury your readers or sorry, your listeners. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a lot to absorb and to think about. Um, one thing that came to mind when you were talking about background knowledge is I agree. It, it makes sense that whatever you have the knowledge about is what will help you read. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's also then the, the skill that they need for like lifelong reading comprehension is that you should know something like seek out the information, seek out the background knowledge. If you don't know what you're reading about, like if this isn't making yeah. sense and you need the background knowledge for it to make sense, go find the background knowledge or. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. You know, I'm not a professional researcher. I'm not trained as a researcher. I'm a teacher. Um, and I just started reading research papers because what I was being told didn't seem to, to match what I, I did know. And um, there was lots of words I didn't understand and lots of concepts I didn't understand. And I would just be reading something, come across something, Google, what does this word mean? Google, okay, what is an effect size? How do I interpret effect size? And then I, I just Google things over and over and over again. And to the point that I thought like, okay, you know what? I have a, a pretty good understanding of this now. Um, and I, I think you're right. That is a skill in itself. And it's an issue point because I haven't heard anyone else make it before. So kudos to you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I guess it's, yeah, like you said, just that it, a lot of us do it naturally. And we just want to make sure that kids grow into those people who are doing it naturally. Yeah. And I think one of the tough things, I think there, this is background knowledge is where I see the most debate. And uh, one of the tough things is if you look at what's going to improve a student's ability to read a specific text, background knowledge is going to be the thing that, that matters most. So like background and vocabulary, um, because it's, it's always highly dependent on a text. Whereas if you want to know what's going to help them read other texts the most, um, it might be, depending on the grade, it might be just their practice summarizing and finding the main idea. And that's not to say that, well, because that, that skill seems to transfer better or that ability, that type of instruction seems to transfer better, that it should be the sole focus. Um, it's more to say that we need to include a lot of different things. And you really can't oversimplify comprehension because it's, it's so very complicated. There was a paper put out by Burns, um, Matt Burns et al. this year, and it um, looked at all the meta-analyses on comprehension. And they looked at dozens of meta-analyses and found large effects for what, if memory serves me correct, over 20 different types of instruction. So, you know, it's it's really the most complicated thing of all. But I, I think we can overcomplicate it too using a research perspective. I would just really boil it down to um, give your students a variety of types of texts, give them a variety of types of questions. And when they read a text, explain to them the background knowledge required for that text and explain the vocabulary that they're going to have trouble with. Yeah, I love that. Okay, one thing that we've talked about kind of throughout is kind of hinting at, at some free resources. Um, and you recently put out a free resource that is very comprehensive and helpful. So do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, I really like free as a teacher because... I don't like spending money. That's, um, as a, a teacher, I think teachers are often expected to buy their own resources. And I don't know if that's entirely fair. So for the last I think, year and a half, I've been just curating free resources that I think are, are 
of use to teachers that I think are aligned with research. Um, and there's it's actually become the most popular page on my, my website. It's just called free SOR resources. Um, but uh, I also, with a, a large group of people, we tried to put out um, uh, a decoding program is what I would call it. It's not a comprehensive literacy, literature program because it doesn't include fluency. It doesn't include, include sorry, comprehension. Um, but it's aimed to try and help boost students' decoding skills and phonemic awareness and phonics skills and morphological skills. Um, we did make, I think, about 90% of the program free. Um, we did put two types of um, products inside of it that we, we charge, I think, a very small premium price. I think we charge $2 per smart board game. And I think we have uh, roughly 14 of those smart board games that you can pay money for if you like. Um, although people can buy them in a bundle all at once at $12. Um, but I actually, I only mentioned that because um, it really wasn't our intention to make money. So in fact, the things on that, that program that are um, least useful are the things that we're charging for. Everything that I thought, well, if you want this to work, if you read, this is what you really need is free. Um, it's, it's that supplementary extra stuff that, that, that costs money. And I just bring that up because I also don't want anyone to say, well, He's making it up. It's not free. It's mostly free. I'm going to call it mostly free. Um, and I do not begrudge any person who downloads the, the free version. Um, in fact, we fully assumed that most people would. Um, and actually, I just finished making a resource today that will massively increase the size of that. Um, and I've sent it over to Dr. Garforth, who is our linguistics editor, because she's far more qualified and far more um, um, knowledgeable about linguistics than I am. And uh, but it's a, a decoding program for older older students. Uh, it's focusing on multisyllabic words, um, which is um, sort of a whole other rabbit hole of its own. But uh, we have um, a five week program coming out for decoding for um, older students that is uh, multisyllabic words. Um, but the, currently, the program includes phonemic awareness, morphology, phonics, um, and there are some decodables that come with it too. All of the phonics lessons are free. All of the phonics games are free. All of the morphology lessons are free. The phonemic awareness lessons are free. Um, and the decodables are free. And the new program coming out for older students will also be free. Um, and uh, I really, I wanted to do that because I felt like there were some things missing from some programs and I wanted to provide people with a resource and if you can't tell, I like free things. So I wanted to make it mostly free. Although I had other people help me. So I had to, to be able to bring other people in to, to support me. I had to justify that by saying, well, we'll charge for some things. Um, but um, uh, for example, one of the big ones is phonemic awareness. Phonemic awareness is one of the main reasons we made that program. As I talked about earlier, most phonemic awareness programs, they focus on um, oral only deletion and manipulation drills which we don't have strong research supporting. We have strong research supporting segmenting and blending um, with letters. And it's actually far easier to do. Um, and our lessons are just PowerPoints. You can just read them to your kid and have them do the drill. It's super easy. Anybody could do it. And it's 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 sort of explains itself, I think. Yeah, it's a lovely resource. I bought the full package when oh, it came out. Yeah. The first time you posted, I was like, oh, $12 for the whole thing. I'll definitely support that. Because nice. it's always like, you know, I'm always looking at all sorts of um, different programs. I always like having lots of materials on hand. 
I was, you know, even though now currently I'm not teaching, I'm not tutoring. Well, I teach my own kids. I homeschool, but um, I'm just doing consultations and stuff, but I still love having all the, the resources and seeing it myself. And yeah, for $12, it was a no brainer. I'll get the full well, thing. That's, so. that's very kind of you. Um, <laughs> uh, I will say, I think it's, it's well aimed towards parents too. It's not meant to be something that requires a, a really, um, sophisticated knowledge of anything to use. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very helpful. Now I'm assuming that because that it's free that there would be no funding for you to be able to do any like huge research on it to see how effective it is um it's funny because you know i've been the person reviewing other people's programs to see if they're effective and uh to evaluate them and part of why i did this is because other people often make these claims this is the best this is the best bonus program. that was it was really what really triggered me i think is everyone just kept saying this is the best program um, and it, I think it's a marketing thing. It's like a really aggressive marketing thing. People will tell you, no one's ever learned how to read before this program. My program <laughs> is the secret to teaching reading. And I was really dubious of this. I started, I found out, well, people done studies. So I started going through this. So, and it's part of why I, I made my, my program free actually is because I didn't have research and I'm here. I am critiquing other people's research. It would be ridiculous of me to be like, and here's my hundred dollar program. <laughs> um, but you know, I've also put the disclaimer on my program, like, hey, we haven't done any research yet. We don't know. Maybe it helps your kids. Maybe it doesn't. It's, it's tough to know. It's all, I, I did spend years researching reading instruction before I developed it. And I worked with very qualified people. Um, and I hope it helps people's students and their children, but I can't guarantee that. And, you know, uh, we have the multisyllabic phonics program coming out. There's no research showing that um, phonics helps older students. Um, but there's a, a, an interest in that. I see teachers talking about teaching phonics to older students. And I, I generally think, think that could be a bad idea because we don't have research showing it works. So, but truthfully, I do teach a little phonics in my class to older students. I am, I've been teaching grade eight for the last couple of years. And I thought, well, why don't I just write down how I do it? And uh, I'm gonna try and put up that disclaimer. Like, this is what I do in my class. You can try it, it's free. Um, I hope it helps. I found it helpful to my students. And in regards to research, um, I would love to do some research at some point. In fact, I'd love to try and get some, some teachers to volunteer their, their data and information to me and agree to participate in a study. And the one thing that I think is really wrong with science in this field is that companies, when they do research like this, they often only publish the results if it's positive. I promise that if I do a study and we get negative results, we'll publish it and we'll say, hey, we tried, we got negative results. Something was wrong. We got to do better. Uh, and we'll try to make improvements. Um, but uh, I do want to wait and hold back because we are still adding to our program a lot. We're still developing. So um, two things that we're really, really planning on expanding on in the near future. And, and part of for the multi-syllabic phonics programs we just put, we're putting out hopefully this week, hope this week. It's probably overly ambitious. I tend to have way faster deadlines in my mind than other people want to agree to. But um, is one, we really want to increase the level of morphology. So we put out uh, a scope and sequence of about um, 60 morphemes with the initial program. And we had about, we have lessons for another, another 70. Um, but it's a, uh, morphology is very complicated. And so our editing process for the morphology side was very in depth. 
Um, and a lot of people checked over them. So we were nowhere near ready to release the whole, all 120 lessons that release. So there's about another 70 or so lessons coming from morphology. Um, and we're in talks with um, a really awesome linguist, who I will not name at this point, of possibly letting them add some of their morphology lessons to our resource. Um, and then we also have um, a lot of work to do on decodables. Both, I, I, I think we want to increase the quality of our decodables and we want to release more. Um, so I think until all of it, everything's put together, we sort of release a work in progress. And in part of the logic too, of saying, well, we have some of these resources cost money is saying, if you want the free program and you want us to help us develop, continue to develop this and improve it over time, we would love your support. Um, here's the, the premium version and we will continue to release free stuff along with it. Um, but, uh, once we have this more developed, I will definitely be, uh, hitting up people on social media and be like, Hey, want to take part in this stuff? Um, but I think we're, we're at least a year or two away from that point. Yeah. Well, that would be great. And I was just also then thinking about like, you know, it's easy for parents to start doing kind of right away, but some teachers have to have a curriculum that is approved by the state and and sometimes and some districts it's like you have to have it but you don't really have to use it more so there's a and some is very strict like no today is this day you are doing this lesson you know so there's a variety so it'd be good if you yeah it can it continues to develop continues and even if there's like you know ideally after research you can get that whole thing where it's then approved by the state and maybe the the school districts are paying however much to 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 support all that but anyways i'm just thinking ahead about that, all that that would be really cool but that is so far ahead of where we are at. <laughs> I, I, I can't even wrap my head around the idea that we'd be on a, a state's approved list because um we're we're a very small operation here um it was a collection of volunteers i, I don't I don't know that anybody thought they were going to make any money from it. Um, right. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and my thinking is you're mostly charging at that point to kind of recoup some of the, what you've already invested in it in terms of just even time. And also well, and we, because the district a lot of time wants like a physical something. Right. Mm -hmm. like, and they, they almost like have to pay something in order to take it seriously. It's yeah. It's like they want yeah. to pay for the super expensive thing because it must be better than the free one. I, you're probably right. I, I probably done a terrible marketing job by making this this mostly free. Um, but, but you're making you know the what? world a better Usually, place. I'm not a business person. I'm a teacher. I don't really view this as a, a business. This is my passion. This is my hobby. I want to help other teachers. Um, and it's awesome if, you know, people want to buy the book or they want to buy the program. That's cool. But um, it's not really the the main objective or goal. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I'm excited for it, and um, I'm hoping all the parents listening and teachers listening, everyone downloads it at least the free version, if not the uh, very cheap premium version. You know what? I I I would I actually tell people if they ask me about it, I'd rather you download the 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 free version first. Try it out. See if you like it. If you like it, maybe consider getting the premium version. I'd hate for someone to download the premium version immediately and then be like, this isn't what I wanted. Uh, because truthfully, I don't know how to make a return policy electronically. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know how to undownload things or I, I don't know how to do it. I'm not that tech savvy. 
So I think you should not, ha- I think you should have a zero refund policy because you have it free. Like <laughs> it's people are being greedy if they're like, Oh no, give me my $12 back. It's not as good as I thought. No, nobody, nobody has, uh, has complained to be honest. Everyone, all of our feedback so far has been positive. Yeah. There was one decodable where we received some, some criticism, but that's okay. We're planning on improving our decodables anyway. It was over time. It's a, it's a work in progress. We're not saying this is um, a completely finished product that will amazingly be the first thing that teaches your kid to read and all other products don't work. We're, I don't <laughs> believe in that kind of marketing. Um, I think there's lots of good programs out there and um, lots of different ways you can teach your students to read. I think there's a strong benefit, though, to using a systematic phonics approach, which is what ours does. Yeah. Yes. All right, Nate, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, so you, it sounded like you are still doing the podcast, your podcast a little bit, but like we're, we're averaging like one episode every six to eight weeks. Um, but our next episode, I will say is going to be really cool. It's going to be really big. If you listen to any of our episodes, listen to that one. Okay. All right. Well, I'll have a link to um, all of the resources down below for everyone to check out. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun to talk to you and sort of nerd out about one of my favorite topics. Yeah, same. (laughs) 